0: to a special edition of the Darden admissions podcast. I'm your host, Brett Woody, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, we're excited to feature a recent conversation from the Women at Darden event series. This conversation features admissions Dean Donna Clark, as well as Senior Associate Dean for Professional Degree Programs, Yael Grushka-Kane. Yael is also a professor of business administration, the Alltech Steislinger, Foundation Bicentennial Chair in Business Administration, and a member of the Quantitative Analysis faculty group here at the Darden School of Business. So, Without further ado, here is a conversation between Admissions Dean Donna Clark and Senior Associate Dean Yael Grushka Kokain.
1: I'm excited to introduce an absolute rock star member of the Quantitative Analysis faculty, Yael Grushka Kokain. I am going to tell you from the get-go that you're in for a treat. We did one of these webinars last year, and I think every single participant, including myself, walked away wanting to know more about project management and decision science and forecasting. So, So be prepared to have a new passion when this webinar ends. Yale's research and teaching focus on data science, forecasting, project management, and behavioral decision making. As an aside, after this webinar, we're going to send you a follow-up, and there are a couple of videos that Yaya has done. One, an incredibly riveting um, video on project management. Highly recommend that you watch that after the webinar. Her research is published in numerous academic and professional journals, and she is a regular speaker at international conferences in the areas of decision analysis, project management, and management science. She is also an award-winning teacher who recently returned to Darden after teaching at Harvard Business School. In 2014, Yael was named one of the 21 thought leaders, um, professors in data science. I've really enjoyed working with Yael on the dean staff. She is a senior associate dean for professional degree programs at Darden. Um, I think she's involved in you know, so many initiatives at Darden that we're excited to tell you about, including scholarship work and planning the upcoming inaugural women in leadership summit in Roslyn next month.
2: So welcome, Yael, and welcome to all of our participants. Thank you, Donna. Thank you for including me. Thank you for uh, inviting me to to. Do- join you at this webinar. It's so fun to see just even just the locations and the little chat, the two minutes of the back and forth in the chat has already put a smile on my face. um, Oh, good. good. Well, it's like one of the silver linings of COVID is doing these kinds of webinars that are
1: so inclusive of students from all over the world. And, you know, we have a record number of international students coming to the full-time MBA program this year. Our international students are a really vital part of our community. Um, And speaking of international Students, you have a really interesting international background. Can you tell people a little bit about your um, international background,
2: Yael? Yes, of course. So um, uh, I don't know if I've told you this before, Donna. Maybe you know this. That I actually was born in New Jersey, which doesn't sound that international. (laughs) uh, I was born in Passaic, New Jersey, but um, I was born. I never lived there. Actually, really, my parents were on sabbatical. My father was an academic as well, and so we traveled around a lot. Um, he um, he was Israeli. My mom is American, New York born, and they met um, in the U.S. Uh, at Cornell, a different school. Um, but um, but shortly after I was born, we went back and forth a little bit between Israel and here, and we ended up settling there when I was about I don't know, three, just shy of four. So I was a little toddler, couldn't speak Hebrew, couldn't speak English. I had all my languages mixed up because we were sure. back and forth so much during those. Uh, Early ages, and so I um, I end up growing up in in Israel doing my um, my you know uh, school school years there. I did military service for three years. So um, all Israeli citizens um, end up doing military service. I did uh, mine as an ordinance officer. I, I was an officer. I served um, kind of in the nineties. I'll reveal my age a bit. Um, and then um, after that, I. Uh traveled the world a little bit. I got my engineering degree in Israel still. So my undergrad is in, in, from Ben Gurion University. I'm an industrial engineer um, by training. And then I worked for a few years in San Francisco. And then I left Israel. So I, like, I've been away from Israel for, for a while now, over 20 years. Uh, ended up settling in London for quite a while. Yeah. My husband is British, mm-hmm. and so I have family there. Did my master's at LSE at the London School of Economics and my PhD from the London Business School before coming to Charlottesville. So all over, all, um, all over, but my cl- my immediate family is in Israel, my husband's immediate family is in England. So um.
1: yeah, I mean, a really cool international background. And, um, and I'm also a, a proud Jersey girl. So I'm glad to hear those New Jersey roots as, as well. I watched um, a video about sort of some of the you know, early, early inspiration to teach. Could you talk about, you know, from a very early age, you were interested in teaching. Can you tell us about that? Because it's, it's such a a great story about knowing kind of what you might want to do at, at, you know, early in your.
2: Yeah. I mean, ever since I remember myself, I mean, it's, I feel like it's a little Hmm. bit of a cliche. I mean, I've heard other professors, maybe not a cliche. I mean, Maybe it's not a coincidence that people who end up being professors dreamt about being a teacher all their lives. So it's not uh, totally bizarre. But my girlfriends, who I've known some since the age of two, always remember when we, you know, role played or you know had all kinds of fantasies. I would always be a teacher in those. I, for some reason. I know that my first grade teacher was very uh, instrumental in affecting me, and and she was always somebody I looked up to, and maybe that's what got me started. I don't, I can't, I can't really pinpoint it. My father was an academic and a professor who always viewed his job more of a, you know, a luxury that he gets to do his hobby as a job because he loved it so much. So I think that there are many different influences, but I, I all along it was a pretty strong current in my life. I was tutoring classmates at the age of 10. I was, you know, TAing uh, from my early days in my undergrad. Um, even in the, I was in scouts and an instructor, always in instruction mode. And in even in the military, I was trained as a train, you know, train the trainer kind of um, role. So it seemed to be a, a repeated theme of mine where I really enjoy um, and kind of get satisfaction from taking complicated ideas and Making them accessible to many different individuals, either you know, very sophisticated at a very sophisticated level if they're advanced uh, learners, um, but even introducing sophisticated topics to learners who have less background. I think that I enjoy uh, finding new ways to present ideas, new ways to make ideas accessible, and new ways to think about pitching them so people can uh, can internalize them. So. That's, that's what teaching is for me. <laughs> yeah, and I am not surprised to hear how what a long-term passion this has
1: been for you. Um, for, for everybody in the audience, I mentioned one of the teaching awards that Yael received, but she has received so many accolades and is such a beloved member of the faculty. Can you tell our participants a little bit about what you teach? And everyone, I'm going to ch- put my shade down because the light has changed and... Um, I'm just going to put that down while the is talking, telling you a little bit about her
2: subject matters that she teaches at Darden. Of course, of course. So, um, and the sun is very strong in Charlottesville today. Um, So I teach a a, a few courses on a regular basis. I definitely teach, uh, I've been teaching project management for gosh, seven, eight years now. It's an elective course for our residential students. I've actually taught it with our executive students this year too. Um, It's an elective that folks take in their second year, Um, And it's all about managing projects, everything from event planning to software design to construction. Um, Many MBA students find themselves in um, project management roles either formally or informally. They're just expected to know these skills, how to be efficient with your time, how to think about sequencing and prioritization. And uh, not many people realize that there are actually formal tools that can be very helpful. So that's one of my passions and, and a topic that I do a lot of research on and um, I teach and it's been pretty successful elective. I have two sections, um, uh, pretty big group, um, and it's very satisfying because almost everybody ends up using these tools and insights later in their jobs. Yesterday, I just met yesterday a student who is starting at Microsoft, and she mentioned that she she was using some principles that I introduced her in the course. So um, that's one course. Another course that I teach is decision analysis. So the area I belong to at Darden is called quantitative analysis. Um, and uh, we teach a core class in decision analysis. It's how to make decisions. Uh, think about risks and uncertainties. Think about um, uh, you know a little bit of statistics and probability. How does probability or or an uncertain future affect your decision making? Um, what kind of tools can you use to make decisions robust and to justify them to others and to feel like you're uh, thinking critically? So that's a great course, uh, core course. Everybody has to take it. Um, there's some Excel in that. There's some tools. There's some you know more sophisticated statistical tools, but um, it's 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 a great uh, you know, methods course that gives students exposure to a lot of different tools that they use in other, other contexts. And, and um, what, a, what a relevant class. And you
1: mentioned uncertainty a little while ago, and we're living in such uncertain yes. times. I mean, what yes. an important skill set to have to help navigate on, you know,
2: leading during uncertain uncertainty. Totally. I mean, in business, there's always uncertainty. If there's a sure thing, then somebody would have, you know, somebody would have already capitalized on there's no no real certainty in in decisions. And they've definitely true, Donna, that decisions have just become more and more complex with uh, added uncertainty and awareness of the impact of uncertainty. So um, the course helps students understand a little bit more what they, how they should be thinking about it, what they can do, different attitudes, some behavioral components, Um, Yeah. So it's very relevant and uh, timely. And then finally, um, I've taught several years, a course, in data science, um, anything from programming in R and Python, working with Tableau, SQL. Um, I don't teach it this coming year. I don't have it on my docket to teach because other faculty are teaching it next year, but um, I've taught it in the past and I may teach it in the future. Um yeah. And I I'm hearing that there's
1: really high demand for those skills among recruiters. So this is a really important skill set to have as a potential MBA graduate.
2: Yeah, so right. So I think you nailed it with that last kind of caveat as an MBA um as a as a somebody graduating with a, with an MBA. I think the skills of programming and data science are very sought after, but it's the combination, it's the MBA with those technical skills that is really that kind of killer combination in my mind, because um, recruiters and companies really need capable leaders that work with the technical teams and work with the operations teams and the business and the marketers and kind of lead the organization forward. And, um, it, you know, that translator role is really hard to come around. And our students, I think, are just ideally positioned. They're very their breadth is 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 very solid and strong. That's what they get from the core. They have you know, they know how to think on their feet because of the case method and the discussion orientation. And uh, I, I believe that that's the best mode for to learn data science and to take it with the right kind of attitude. We're not developing coders around writing the most efficient recursive algorithm. That's a different type of course. That's not what we our goal here. If somebody <laughs> wants that, we can do that too. I love coding. and I, I love obsessing about coding efficiently, but that's not. Really, what um, uh, I believe our students here need. Uh, here we're talking really about understanding a business problem, understanding where the data and the data science and the technique comes into play, um, understanding how to make sense of it and kind of you know improving. Uh, and making your best business decision moving forward. So, yeah. um, just a, there's a comment
1: from the audience saying, love hearing about SQL and Tableau usage. And by the way, everyone, we are gonna take your questions. I have some questions for Yael, for Yael, but just if you have questions that you'd like to ask Yael, please post them in please. the Q and A. I'd love to go back a little bit because you talked about your love of teaching ever since you were a child. Um, and then when you talked about, you know, the fact that you worked uh, for um, in the military, for the mandatory service for the Israeli um, government for three years and worked in San Francisco. What prompted your passion for these areas enough to go back and get your master's and um, PhD from LSE in in London?
2: Well, first, uh, um, the first thing that I would point to, and I think, I I think there's a video out there that talks about it. Um, but, um, uh, there is, that's why I'm asking you because it was so
1: interesting to watch. (laughs) It's
2: funny because I just met, um, there's a friend of mine that, that comes up in the story and I just saw her after many years of not seeing her. So it was nice to reconnect, but, um. I, when I finished my military service, I looked, I was, I just wasn't really, I didn't know what I wanted to do for my undergrad. In Israel, we do them in reverse, so reverse. We go first to the military and then we go to the university, we go get our bachelor's. So I started my bachelor's degree when I was like 22, right? So like you you do it a a little bit more, um, a little bit of an older age than you would here in the U.S. Um, But I didn't, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I lo- loved maths and science and physics and chemistry, but I didn't necessarily want to want to go and study those, um, more n- kind of natural sciences. So I was looking at, okay, what else can I do? And my one of my, my best friends' dad at the time, he knew me very well as a, as a child and he knew what I did in the military and how much I liked like processes and efficiency. And um, I worked with Gantt charts and I worked with the with the with the with the logistics and the planning aspects. And he recommended industrial engineering, which at the time was a fairly up and coming kind of area. And I I dug in, did some research, and I realized that it's really true that it's a very, it's almost like applied math. It's very practical. So it has a relevance in the real world, but it is technical too. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of mathematics, there's a lot of optimization, there's a lot of use of statistics, and and you need to understand uh, the numeric side of things and have a fairly solid quants. Um, And so it was kind of the best of both worlds. It allowed me to bring some rigor and, and mathematics to a very practical set of tools that were relevant to people out there. And so that was always a running theme. It was there from when I started my studies. I loved it and I really enjoyed every day in my undergrad. And then when I worked in San Francisco, I was selling ERP systems. I don't know if folks online know what ERP systems are, enterprise resource planning. Typically I say that with a smile because when people hear about it, Nobody really likes ERP systems. They're big, complicated systems that have people in trauma if they had to go through a transformation or so on. Um, But when I was selling that and working with decision makers and companies, um, I really missed kind of developing theory and developing theory that um, um, leaders wanted to to learn and, and apply. And I specifically realized that projects were not being thought of at a strategic and executive level, but they were left for project managers to manage at a kind of lower level of the organization. And there wasn't this recognition that if their projects were run poorly, it would affect the company's um, uh, performance. And so I wanted to go back to school. I wanted I missed the teaching, I missed the research and I decided to go back and focus exactly on that on like project management decision, project management, strategic decisions, how do projects get sourced, selected, managed, and how do decisions get made throughout, which is what I ended up doing. So. And that must be such a relevant background. In addition
1: to Yael's really um, an impressive teaching background, she is a senior associate dean for professional degree programs at mm-hmm. Darton, sits on the dean's staff, is an integral part of a, a number of initiatives, including the Women at Darton initiative that we're going to talk about later. I would imagine that all the project management, management that you teach is so helpful to you personally as you're juggling all of this.
2: Uh, yes, sometimes I think not. I don't use it enough. Sometimes I think, oh, my goodness. I, 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 like, isn't there a statement about the cobbler walks barefoot? <laughs> yeah, so sometimes yes. I feel a little bit like that where I'm not sure. managing as good as I should. Um, but it definitely helps. It definitely helps me think about. Um, so there's a technical term project management called the critical path. People often think that the critical path has to do with the criticality of the work. Um, but the critical path is really about the sequencing and the timing, whatever takes the longest is, uh, it's important to identify because that's going to determine the length of your project and everything else has slack. And so that thinking, that identification of focusing on tasks that have the long, longest duration that will affect your completion time. That is something that I do, you know, think about often and, and take it into account when I execute and it helps me, um. Research projects are very hard to project manage, actually. They're probably some of the hardest projects to project manage because there's so much uncertainty and you don't really know where your research is going. And, mm. and there's very little external deadline. So um, it's yeah. an interesting project management challenge for all yeah, of us. Yeah, I would imagine.
1: Can you tell everyone a little bit about your role as Senior Associate Dean for Professional Degree Programs at Jarden?
2: Yes, I would love to. Um, uh, so I i think you mentioned earlier, I took a two-year leave of absence and I went to Harvard Business School. I served on their faculty in the TOM unit in the technology and operations management. I taught there. I met uh, wonderful, wonderful individuals and spent um, a great two years in Boston. Um, when I came back, I um, took a leadership role, um, which allows me to focus and lead the MBA programs for professional students. And when we say professional students, we uh, that's the term we have for students that have full-time jobs. They don't take two years off to move to Charlottesville and do a residential program, but they uh, keep working, they live at home, and uh, they have uh, busy lives. And in addition to that, they have classes in the evenings, classes on weekends, and they get their MBA um, in addition to everything else. So we have an executive format um, and we have a part-time format and um, and I am the leader of those programs. So everything from planning the curriculum to identifying opportunities to make the programs better, new courses, new sequencing, new um, features of the program. The, the students have to travel abroad at least once, quite a few of them about a Third of them go abroad four times. We call that the GEMBA. It's a global um, executive format. Um, so working on that and planning those, um, making sure that our students uh, have everything they need to balance their very busy lives between school and and their professional lives. And I have I don't work alone. Of course, I have an incredible um, staff team that lead the program that are there for the students, work with them on on you know all, all the weekends and help them through it. And we also have. Um, over a dozen, about 15 or so faculty that form a program committee that helped me really uh, think through all of the various practices and, and procedures and different norms that we have for that program to keep thinking about making it even better for our students. So developing new courses, developing new um, opportunities for them. We, we, for instance, a new innovation that we came up with was a, a DC-based course. So the, the students happen to, many of them live about a uh, Two thirds live in the D.C. area because they work there, too, um, for these executive formats. And so but they don't really know or they don't spend time meeting with a lot of business leaders. They meet some through their work. But we have a residency in D.C. where we go around and we meet with just unique companies that come together in the D.C. area. And it's just an, another global kind of insight to why DC is what it is and what are unique features of having such a capital, uh, the, you know, the U.S. capital, a strong city yeah. <laughs> uh, on, on an international radar, um, but w- what kind of business landscape that that allows.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you mentioned just a little while ago having been at HBS for two years. Can you tell everybody a little bit about some of the factors
2: that um, led you to come back to Darden? Uh, of course. Um, so I missed it. I mean, this was my home before I went there. Um, it's a very, darn is much smaller. And so I, uh, and, and it, because not only because of that, but it, it, this is also a choice, right. To keep it small, but like the, the size and the, the attitude and the focus here is on the community and the learning experience. And, um, that was very important to me that's something i'm very passionate about we view our classroom as uh, very you know sacred to us and we care about what c- takes place in that room and um and everybody gets to know everybody so at graduation you know we know, as faculty know, you know i wouldn't say 100% of the students but we get to know you know 70 80% of them that kind of intimate feel and accountability and personalization was something that i missed um Harvard has a lot of amazing people, but it's bigger and um, it has a lot of other benefits, but it's it it's just bigger. And that focus is slightly different from the nature of of a place that has, um, you know, um, triple the, the number of individuals. And so I missed that. And I missed the entrepreneurial spirit of the faculty here. Faculty are really experimental and kind of like, you know, a little bit, each one of us is a whole enterprise trying to do things, trying to create new things. Um, so it, it pulled me back.
1: Yeah, and just in case people are not aware, we're really proud that Darden D- D- has been ranked the top educational experience and for having the top teaching faculty by The Economist for 10 consecutive years. So one Yale was talking about how strong the educational experience is, we're really grateful and uh, to have that acknowledgement from The Economist, so something for you to research after the webinar as well. And we are taking live questions from the audience, so please feel free to put them in the chat. Um, Yael, can you talk a little bit about the case method specifically and how, you know, the benefits of the case method broadly, but also maybe just a little bit on how the case method may benefit women specifically?
2: Yeah, great. And um, I see a bunch of excellent questions in the Q&A, so um, I'm sure that we can weave them in with this topic too. So the case method, a lot of people use the term case method, and um, I think many, not everybody means the same thing thing when they say that. So <clears throat> let me explain a little bit what we what we hear at Darden talk about when we mean when we use the, the the phrase case method. Sometimes people may use the terms Socratic method. Um, recently I've heard a lot of our faculties talk uh, faculty talk about student centered learning. Um, <clears throat> there's a few things a few components to it. First, students um, read a case the case is most uh, almost uh, almost always, rare occasions it's not, but almost always a real story of a real protagonist facing a decision problem in practice. So companies, um, uh, individuals, maybe this is based on public sources. So whoever wrote the case used public information. Sometimes it's based on private information, like interviewing the company and getting firsthand access to, to a decision moment in a company's life uh, where our faculty go and do some field work with that company. Um, and students have to... S- typically consult or or put themselves in the protagonist's role and then give advice on what would you do? What would you do if you were the, the protagonist? What would you do if you were in the role of that decision maker? And the case has typically enough information um, to make that decision, or at least the same kind of information that the protagonist in reality would have had, maybe. If something is missing, then the students will have to identify what missing information they would go out and seek. But it's trying to really put the student in that position of a decision maker Um, For a few reasons. One, there is really um, no better way at getting better at making business decisions than practicing. So like facing that kind of situation where there's a tough decision to make with a lot of different things to to consider is realistic. It's what business leaders do all the time. And so practicing it here in our classroom over 300 cases is the best way to get better at it. in reality, there is no like um, you know manual at the bottom of the drawer that tells you oh for this decision this is the right framework to use. But decision uh, decisions have to be made, and decision makers and our leaders, our students have to make decisions all the time based on their common sense or based on whatever they've learned here that that fits that that scenario. And so we're really developing that capability to face a situation figure out what's the best set of tools to use and come to a decision that uh, that people feel comfortable with being challenged so it's a discussion environment people challenge each other in a collaborative way help each other build ideas up help each other solidify kind of weaknesses in the in a proposal and kind of maybe uh, improve uh, scenarios so it really tries to mimic um reality in the sense that individuals that graduate from Darden go out to make amazing decisions all the time surrounded by a lot of you know a team and members that help them and not on their own uh, using kind of messy and incomplete information so that's what the case method does that's what the Socratic method does and it's really learning by asking it's also how do you ask the right questions how do you dig in and demystify the situation by asking a lot of questions so we as faculty demonstrate that we never answer, we only ask more questions. Students st- start asking each other questions and it's really helping them understand that by listening to each other and being active listeners and asking the right questions, they will dig into a root cause that will allow them to make a good decision. So that's the process. Um, I really am a big fanatic of, uh, of of this method and why I think it's better than lectures, but we can talk about that in a moment. You asked a little bit about uh, specifically about women in our classroom, um, and I say this out of um, maybe some years of experience here in Darden, but also just being a woman myself, And in the sense that I think it is really empowering to help, to, to ask the right question at the right time. Mm -hmm. To help others around you and to kind of influence people by bringing them on board through that kind of discovery process. So like practicing this notion that we leave, when we make these decisions, we strip, we kind of are humbled a little bit. We strip of our ego and we actually try to raise all the things that we don't know in order to kind of resolve, come to a resolution and move forward. Um, Walking into the classroom saying, this is the right answer and we're done is definitely not going to go that far because you really want to make a recommendation, rationalize your recommendation, get a lot of input and kind of solidify your perspective. And I actually think that, um, uh, and of course, women are very different from each other not everybody's the same and, and men are all different from each other, but this notion of individuals that flourish in our classroom are ones that are willing to listen to other people mm-hmm they learn the value of listening even more so through the classroom. They're willing to admit when they're, maybe they, you know, change their mind or they, they, they rethought something. They're willing to admit they're willing to recognize what they're hearing from, from peers and from people around them. Um, And then they gain comfort and move on. And I, I've seen women do that really, really well. Of course, I've seen uh, men do that really well as well. Um, But it's, it's all this notion about a classroom that is about, not an individual self, but it's about a group coming together to make ultimate the choice. And we all walk away empowered. We all walk away with a new set of capabilities, but we do it in a way that brings us together first and allows us to collaborate on that process and recognize that decision-making is not about an individual, but it's about a group of people. It's about a process. It's about improving over time. And I think that um, that's something that many of our our women find appealing. Yeah. And I think that
1: is such a great answer. There was a question from Brianna about what is the largest advantage you believe post MBA women from Darden encounter in the workplace? And I think your response um, to the previous question was probably very (laughs) encapsulating of of this question. Yeah,
2: Um, I think I do think that um, from from conversations with our alums, which I'm very close to, um, uh, you know, I went with two of them yesterday to the Lady Gaga show and met a bunch of others. Uh, really, the benefits of of this approach are in the long term, right? The transformation occurs here, and it is very noticeable for our students. But the benefits uh, are years to come after when you go out and in the workplace, you're comfortable to roll your sleeves up. You know, people come to our classroom ready to engage because I will never provide an answer. Um, So I will start off by saying, Donna, what do you recommend? So you need to be willing to roll your sleeves up. Take the conversation, lead a conversation, uh, um, you know, corral a group of individuals around your approach and your perspective, maybe share your screen, walk people through your analysis, uh, you know, look at somebody else's, ask their questions. So that kind of capability in the workplace is really valuable and not all um, are are used to it. And so um, our students tend to be very comfortable in those settings and and our women as part of that. You know, it's not about going and hiding in your office and doing some analysis and then coming up with a deck that is fully fledged and and ready to go. No, it's about this notion of okay, where do we start? How do we how do we make sense of a messy situation? And our students become very very good. We, and it's it's obvious to to employers later.
1: Yeah, and you said a word that I hear a lot from students, and that is engaging. And you all might imagine just how engaging a classroom is when you have somebody like Yael leading you through a case discussion. Um, I think that's very energizing. There's a great question from Jenna in the chat asking if you faced any hardships in academia and how did you overcome them, specifically as a woman?
2: Um, so academia, um, like many other fields, um, there's some areas in academia that have uh, different distribution in terms of men and women. Um, in business specifically, there are more male faculty than female faculty. So I think the majority of business schools hover around the 30% faculty, female faculty, if I'm not mistaken. And even within the different areas and units, it's not always balanced. So in some areas you'll find more uh, female faculty than in others. Um, I think some of the challenges in academia are the challenges of women in many places. Um, so, you know, I have, I have two kids raising, uh, having a family, having outside obligations and juggling is never easy. Um, and sometimes um I have a equal equal sharing partner if, if if not um he carries the load in some ways um while I drove <laughs> driving back from lady gaga he takes he took my son to camp today and yesterday but um I think it's a be- so so some, some of the struggles are the same right like you, we hit our prime and we as an academic uh we work on something called t- many of us work towards tenure which is uh You work for seven years, and either you can stay, or you are asked to leave, which is a pretty big kind of gate. Um, And those years, you know, coincide with your thirties. Okay, so it's a year; it's those uh, years, for for me, they happen to coincide with my thirties until I got my PhD. It's a long career trajectory. So, you know, undergrad, PhD. I just started as a professor in my early thirties. I I was uh, heavy into my tenure process in my late thirties and my forties, early forties, and that's exactly prime years in terms of like you know, kids at home and and raising a family. So some of those struggles are similar across domains. It's not unique to academia, but it's definitely challenging when there's a lot of um, things you need to accomplish. In academia, it's hard because there's no real time. I can do my research at three in the morning. I can do my research at five in the morning and I can do my research at, at, you know, at at 2 p.m. I just need to do it. And so when it's so self-led and so entrepreneurial, um that also implies that um you have to figure it out right you ha- I, it's up to me to kind of balance my life cycle and and balance my time and it's it's not always easy to do right like um sure. I, so so those are some challenges just the nature of the work and research is slow and it takes a long stretch of time and you need to be writing and sometimes traveling to meet co-authors and companies and mm-hmm. um so so that's that's pretty hard um in addition to that, I think that there's, um, you know, mm-hmm. like many other industries, still certain biases that that we face and, and situations where, you know, there are fewer because of the numbers, but also maybe because of um, just historical trends. There are fewer women in leadership roles. There are fewer women on editorial boards, fewer female reviewers, fewer female um, editors and associate editors and, and panelists and conferences. And so when I was... You know, earlier on in my career, there was a bit more of a void in terms of role models. There are some unbelievable role models that helped me significantly, but there aren't as many maybe. Um, and then as things are shifting and there's more awareness, now that I'm more senior, I also get a called upon to serve in those roles, which is wonderful and I'm honored. But then I'm also pulled really thin because I'm sitting on, you know, I'm like I'm juggling editorial roles in four different journals and I and I just don't have enough time to, to do everything but the representation matters. And so, you know, if, if I'm not doing it, there aren't, there aren't that many, um, uh, there are still not enough women in the field. So we, you know, some something has to give. So, so those are some typical struggles. And I think it's the same in many different industries.
1: Yeah. How do you manage your energy? I mean, I think one of your signature strengths is you have this just contagious energy level. Um, and how do you manage that? Um, related to, you know, all the things you're juggling. I know you're a runner, for example. Yeah, Tell us a little yeah, bit yeah. about like you're channeling this and fantastic energy.
2: Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would do it very well. So let's just start with that. Um, um, I do have a lot of energy and I've always had a lot of relatively um high levels of energy. So I'm an energetic person. I just, you know, the other day I was thinking to myself, I, I'm so lucky that I get Paid to do the job that I love to do so much. Uh, I get so much joy and satisfaction. So that just fills me up with yeah. excitement and enthusiasm. It comes, yeah, uh, it definitely comes across every, every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I do love running and I do make sure to make time for that. So I think that that's really important. I like music and live music. I like movies and shows. I love uh, fashion and shoes. Like there's things that I love. And when I say it, uh, Donna, you're smiling because you you know that I love those things too, right? So part of that is because, I don't know, personally, and this is a personal choice. I don't think it's true for everybody, but I kind of feel comfortable being myself and bringing myself to my work. So I show up that way. It's not that I I try to like leave that at home. And so by right. doing yeah. that, I think that for me, that brings that allows me to bring that enthusiasm because I'm showing up as myself. Right. So I want, yeah,
1: that's the authenticity is so important to, you know, joy and wonderful that you're in an environment where you can be your your authentic self. And we all benefit from that. There's a nice comment in here from David Cleary says, not a question, but can't wait to start learning from you. Yael and the rest of the Durden faculty, he's starting EMBA in six days. So David, we look forward to greeting you. Yeah. Okay, and I'm just gonna take a look at some of the other questions in here. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Women at Darden Initiative. What you, what drew you to be involved in the Women at Darden Initiative? Can you tell everybody who a, a little bit about that initiative, as they they may not know about it yet?
2: Yes, of course. So um, so we have a um, a Women at Darden Initiative. Um, some folks know because I think they uh, the type well i think it was showcased a little bit in the invite for this uh, event but um we are we know what darden can give our female students it can i mean there are great benefits to all of our students male and female um but specifically talking about women sometimes women are not sure where to go to business school they're not sure if to go to business school they're not really sure if they want to be in business in general so tackling um or having conversation with women at various stages of their Process encouraging them that there is a role for women in business that they're vital for the workplace and can add a lot and bring a lot to the table is part of this kind of general philosophy. But specifically, what is it about Darden that um, empowers them and, and and strengthens them to succeed long term? Um, the community focus, the 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 accountability, the humbleness of our case method, the the ability to kind of reward doers, because it's a get your hands dirty and and execute kind of place from the case method and in the class and showing up for class to everything that the students do, co-curriculum, everything everything is about getting stuff done and getting involved. I think that's also an environment that many women can flourish. And also the case method is about diversity of thought. And um, uh, we have such an array of backgrounds in our classrooms. Really, uh, um, there is no one... You know, profile of a student with a specific background that needs to uh, to enter here. Actually, the more varied and interesting and and just different your background, um, we encourage that and love that and celebrate in the classroom because it really builds on our our case method and our approach to to solving business problems. And I think that all of that is in favor of women. So these initiatives focus on and spreading the news. So like going out there, uh, meeting with 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 female candidates or not even. They don't know that they're a candidate or potential kind of applicants before trying to encourage them to open their mind and think about Darden as a, as a designated school, uh, raising awareness of what unique is it, what's unique about Darden, connecting alumni with amazing success stories to some of our students and applicants, um, closing those loops and creating opportunities for mentorships. Um, celebrating women while they're here in all of these various ways ensuring that we are really um, state-of-the-art and and leading in terms of how we talk about community and the things that we do to improve society um, uh, at large, but also our community in terms of dialect and dialogue and conversation. Um, The Women's Summit um, has various aspects. Um, It's part of the Women at Darden is the Women's Summit event in September, Uh, really showcase thought leaders from within the community, but also just in general, thought leaders in the business landscape around uh, empowerment of women, um, disruptors of various kinds and what it takes to be a disruptor, talking about um, uh, various um, aspects, uh, women in the media, what it is to lead through media, women in technology. Um, There's some really interesting conversation although I don't think that there's a session in this year's summit, but there's a very interesting conversation that I'm having with a few of our alums around women's uh, service on boards. So I didn't know anything about serving on a board um, until a few years ago. And then I started serving on a few nonprofit boards. So I started small. Um, And then I'm now on the Darden Foundation board. I've been a trustee for a few years. I serve on uh, the board of uh, two or three startups and technology companies. And it's incredible how it's helped me think about myself as a leader, think about myself as a business leader. It's given me credibility in all kinds of settings. And I learned just so many new things by being a board member, but we don't often think about that. So opening women's mind to to various ways in which their career can kind of um, evolve, that's all part of these initiatives uh, um, through uh, Women at Darden.
1: And, and I told everybody you have endless energy, you know, in addition to everything else we've talked about, you, you're um, on these boards as well. Um, you mentioned the Women's Summit, and I know that you and Mike Lennox are leading a session and have a yes. podcast yes. Um, called Good Disruption. Can you talk a little bit about Good Disruption
2: and oh, yes. uh, just maybe a, gl- a glimpse into that? Oh, it's been so much fun. Actually, we we started a few months ago and we weren't sure. I never did a pod. I, I I never had a podcast before and I wanted to experiment a little bit. And I believe we have seven episodes out maybe. I think it's seven. We're working on a few more. Um, we choose. So Mike is a colleague. Uh, Mike Lennox is a colleague. He teaches in the strategy area. He focuses on digital transformation. Actually, his background is in kind of industrial engineering as well. So we share a common background. Um, But we've been uh, co-hosting a podcast where we, um, every episode we choose a technology, electric vehicles, clean meat, um, um, what else have we chosen recently, crypto, um, you know, AI and music. We choose every every episode, we choose a technology. We first describe it a little bit. What exactly is the disruption? What exactly is the, it doesn't always have to be tech in the um, pure sense of tech. Um, So what is exactly is the technological innovation? What is the role of data or AI or technology or just um, uh, something new? And then we typically bring in an expert um, to tell us a little bit more and for us to ask and gain some uh, some deeper kind of um, appreciation and awareness. And then we try to decide or make the call good, bad, or no disruption. So is this a good disruption, a bad disruption, or no disruption at all? and sometimes, you know, we will disagree. Sometimes we will agree. Um, uh, I'll say that Mike is a very big fan of electric vehicles. He has at least one Tesla, and he's not a very strong believer of crypto. Uh, but it's been really lots of fun to, A, learn about these technologies, really understand, take a deeper dive into emerging um, phenomena, and then uh, try to 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 learn from the experts that come and and then make the call. So... It's been it's been great. We talked about online learning um, and the evolution for higher ed. So yeah, it's been great. That's great. And we just
1: posted the podcast series in the chat. So I know I'm going to listen to it. It sounds it sounds amazing. And for those of you who would like to, um, please feel free to to listen to Good Disru- Disruption, the series. There are a couple questions in the chat from students asking about how Darden engages with male allies. Um, and I know there is a group called Men at Allies. Could you just yeah. say a couple of words about men as allies at Darden?
2: Um, yeah. And actually the, the topic of allyship is, is growing in its momentum. And I think this is only an amazing thing, including, I believe, some conversations at the summit that will be focused on allyship. Because um, allyship, yes, it could be men serving as allies for women. But I think the topic of allyship is broader. Um, Allyship is maybe at some point we will talk about it as, you know, just a common, uh, a general notion of how to interact with people around us and a general kind of sense of maturity and EQ. But really allyship is about being thoughtful around other identities that aren't yours when you're in certain situations. Like how do you display yeah, patience, awareness, um, understanding, empathy. Um, um, how do you ask questions and expose even your own vulnerabilities when you have people around you that are are, are different, right, are, are of a different group? So that could be an ally that comes from a, some kind of majority group, represents, represents a majority group, how they become allied to the various minorities, but it quickly m- uh, moves into a space of intersectionality. So like, I'm going to serve as an ally, to folks that have an identity that is different from mine, regardless of the minority majority kind of uh, classification, I think no no longer matters as much. It's really this notion of being an okay. ally. Actually, there are very specific actions that you can take. And it is about pushing the understanding of what it is that I can do as an ally that will actually help and serve, a, um, you know, a good purpose in terms of supporting the people who I want to support and not being an ally in the way that I believe that it is true. Right? So it's about listening. It's about understanding what allyship can help where our pivotal and critical moments where if you are an ally, you can really make a big difference. Um, tactics for doing that in a way that is um, conducive to, to growth and to further conversation and to foster positivity. Um, all of those I think are not always we we don't always have those capabilities or tools at our fingertips. We aren't always exposed to them, and so through these conversations around allyship, um, we we get trained and we get um, better at it. So um, yeah, it's 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 been great to see the community embrace it, and I think that it's going to grow in terms of it um, the topic of of the day.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And so nice to see that there are so many questions in the chat about it. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, you, it. yeah. Yeah, you mentioned earlier the diversity in the class classes that you teach. There's a question from Mazzino about how you manage diversity and culture shock in business school. And yeah. just before I turn it over to you, just wanted to let you know, Mazzino, that we just finished international student orientation. There is a week of international student orientation before Dardenet, Darden, Darden before Darden and before the orientation for everyone, very substantive um, sort of immersion into Darden and Charlottesville and the United States. And that just ended. And I participated in it a, a lot. And one of my favorite Uh, activities at Darden to see all the international students, 40% this year, introducing themselves from all over the world. So just wanted to let you know that there is a really thoughtful, substantive international student orientation. And now I'll turn it over to Yael to talk about how you manage diversity and help with culture shock in your classes.
2: Yeah. So I think the orientation helps in the sense that it gives folks more time on the ground, just time to get settled. I think the biggest struggle in my mind at the beginning of uh, something as big as moving to a country to do a program like the MBA, not necessarily Darden specifically, but I think in general, the biggest the biggest challenge is really that you're trying to do everything at once. You're moving, you're finding a place to live. You don't really know the city. You don't really have a bank account or or you know you don't even know where to get your clothes cleaned or whatever it is. Like It's just overwhelming. And you're trying to meet a bunch of new people from different parts of the world. And that creates the shock, I think. In my mind, and I'm not uh, an expert, but from my experience, that creates the shock. And very often, if you diffuse it, and if you have more time to settle, and you kind of get your bearings, I know for me that's really important because then I can show up for the second half of interacting with people that are, are, you know, from different places. I can show up in a in a more calm and and you know presentable way. I think somebody mm-hmm. once gave me the advice around me as a, as a working mother with a career is like the biggest thing for me is infrastructure. If I know that my Mm. kids are sorted, that I know where I, you know, that everything is working and I know how my day is going to run and I have my food, my, you know, my meals, my, you know, logistics, then everything else will, is much easier for me to digest the interaction with people. the get to know people, the work, the challenge of the work, everything else I can do, because my life, so to speak, is settled. So, so the inter- international orientation helps with that. And even students who come to Charlottesville a little bit early and get settled, I think it helps a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the second half of the question around culture shock, when you bring 300, if it's our residential program, that's 300 students. If it's our part-time students, it's you know 65 students. If it's our EMBA students, 135 students, whatever the group is, it's always gonna be a bit of a, shock, getting so many people exposed to so many people at once with the content, you're also learning and it's hard and it's intense. And so you're doing all of these things at once. So things that we do is really, again, part of what I think of as Darton's secret sauce. It's everything that we do outside the classroom, right? We get to know each other. And that's from the faculty to the staff, um, people serving lunch to the people uh, um, who, who wash the boards to the dean. Everybody wants to get to know each other at an individual and personal level. Why? Exactly because it makes everything else possible, right? So students join Darden, they'll be hosted at faculty houses. They'll get to spend time. I mean, I think every student at Darden Fit graduates, they've they've seen at least one, if not, I don't know, five or six faculties, living rooms and houses and you see my dog jumping all over me and, you know, getting into trouble and you see my kids, you know, whatever, getting me into trouble. And um, (laughs) we kind of, we kind of are people, right? And we let, um, we present ourselves as people and the students get to know us as who we are and vice versa. The students come to our house or we travel abroad together, or we wake up and go for runs together or go, you know, go out um, and share, you know, um, break bread, so to speak, or share food, like all of those things matter. And they matter, they they allow us to break some barriers in terms of culture. They allow us to just learn about each other's culture. I went out to, stu- um long after I finished um, teaching a few students, actually, maybe even after they graduated, I don't remember if it was before after, maybe it was right before students graduated. We went out for a meal, myself and a few students from Nigeria, and I just didn't have the time until then. We none of us had the time to just sit down and and be. And we had a miraculous gift of an evening that was a little bit impromptu. We sat around a table and we shared stories. And they told me all these unbelievable stories that I didn't know about their lives and growing up, and each was very different from the other. But I just got home and my mind was blown. And I've been doing this for you know 14, 15 years now. And my family has seen me with many, many different students and um. I still am blown away by what I learn about my students and what they've been through and their stories and just how extraordinary they are. And I learn about their countries and I learn about their, you know, in- interesting just like things that happen in the world that I didn't know. So that's I think how we break barriers by just getting to know each other as a person. Um, and it's not about getting to know a culture; it's just the kind of getting to know. Yeah, a specific individual,
1: right? And the richness of those meaningful relationships that you're describing—I mean—give everybody so much joy. It's yes. uh, it's amazing. I don't know if people picked up on it earlier, but Yael talked about seeing Lady Gaga last night with some Darton alumni, and so nice that you form those kinds of relationships outside of the classroom that you go to concerts as well as having them over to your home. So that's just well, wonderful. It just,
2: it, they're amazing people, and um, you know, I was in London a few um, earlier in the summer. I went to London. Uh, for various reasons, I had a conference. I had, um, and as I mentioned earlier, my fa- I have family there, and um, due to uh, the, I want to say gift, but it would be uh, generous. The the COVID that is the gift that keeps on giving in our world today. We had I had two extra tickets for uh, a, a West End show. Uh, we went to see Wicked, and I had two extra tickets because two members of my family could not go, um, and I the night before I happened to kind of uh, students of mine saw me on Instagram. They knew I was in London. We met up for an ice cream. And then I said to them, you know, I have a, I have two extra tickets to, to wicked. And so they ended up joining us to see the show. Right. So like, Oh, so it was, nice. Uh, it was so nice. It was great. Uh, um, that's that's great. I guess last question, and this is an opportunity maybe
1: for, you know, a little inspiration. One of the things we've all read about a lot as um, imposter syndrome, syndrome and the extent to which women in some settings can experience 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 imposter syndrome. And there's a really great question in here from Lynn. Have you experienced a difficult time where you personally had self-doubts, maybe some things not falling into place? And what did you do to overcome that?
2: Uh, Totally, Lynn. So um, I don't know that I formally knew the idea, the term imposter syndrome uh, until I went through it myself. So like I just didn't know it was a thing, and so I think part of the fact that people are talking about it helps, but um, when I was in my second year at Darden, and like I can tell you in a lot of detail about this, because I I remember it vividly, and it's been a a defining moment in my career, when I was in my second year at Darden, I just felt things unravel, and it could be a, a bunch of factors coming together, which I think it normally is. But for me personally, and Lynn I'm sharing a very personal story when I can't even see your face. So you'll have to knock on my door um, uh, when you're here. But I um, you know, I I had my first year here at Darden. It was very successful. I did okay in the classroom. I had a few papers coming out. I felt on the top of the world. I had my dream job. Like I couldn't believe I nailed this job. It was really the place for me. And so my first year was great. Then my second year, I had my daughter, so I was post uh you know giving birth. I, I I got a couple papers rejected. My teaching was still good, but it wasn't like, you know, wow, because like the first year was like, wow, I can do this. The second year I can still do this, but okay. Now what? So it was like things were just like deflated and Um, You know, papers getting rejected is really hard and some, you know, disagreement with with colleagues and co-authors. And so it all came unraveling and I started to doubt myself. It's like, oh, I'm going to be revealed now. You know, my entire undergrad and master's and PhD was all a hoax. And I fooled everyone for like, you know, the 16, 17 years it took me to graduate in those programs with distinction. It's like, no, 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 no. I kept doubting myself that those distinctions were, you know. I'm really hard and dedicated and I can really work super hard, but am I really that smart? Really? Like everything was kind of open to self-doubt and can I survive in this classroom and do I really have it? And all of that came, uh, um, you know, rushing through, which I assume is, you know, what people would say is imposter syndrome, or at least that's how I later learned that that was what I was feeling. And, you know, it took me, some time to first know and acknowledge and understand what I'm sensing and what I feel, find ways to, you know, chip away at it and kind of dis- disregard those those feelings or or find the answer to those those feelings by um, reminding myself all of my accomplishments accomplishments and things that I keep on doing and and keep surviving and surprising myself to reinforce the fact, this is no longer a fluke, right? The, the fluke is when it doesn't go and things don't go well, or it's just not a fluke. It's just part of it is that there are moments of struggle and moments of success. And I just need to know that when there's moments of struggle, it doesn't mean that the, the success was a chance by chance, the mm. success is still there. And it allows me to cope with the failures to kind of find the next success. So yeah. um, I know that's 11 and we need to wrap up, but hopefully Lynn that made sense to you and, and to say it happens. Um and we overcome it by uh, chip by chip, by building it up, and and reminding ourselves that those those moments of doubt are there for a reason because they enable us to kind of continue to to grow. Yeah,
1: thanks so much um, for sharing that really personal story, Ya'el, and Lynn for asking the question because I think a lot of people do experience that. Um, at, at least once, if not multiple points in their career and such, and a, think, such a great story. Um, and I
2: think, Donna, I've heard, you know, a, a lot of people of various identities uh, suffer from it. I think yes, that some um, women um, use it maybe a little bit more often or feel comfortable talking about it. But I actually think that that's changing too. I think more and more men are 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 sharing mm-hmm. and willing to to talk about it or interested in talking about it or aware of it. And so I think it's becoming more of a norm of a conversation, which is good, because I think it's helpful um, for people to talk about. Um, um, There's a lot of things that we go through, uh, either physically or mentally, that we don't mention. And I think just by talking about and recognizing, actually, you're not alone. Or Right. right.
1: These are very universal um, universal. life experiences. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing yours. And so glad you pushed through it, because in addition to all the talents and expertise that you bring to Darden Mm -hmm. It is absolutely unequivocally a true statement to say Yael is one of the most beloved members of the Darden community. So we're, we're so grateful that you're here. And thank you so much for your time okay. today. It's always a pleasure, Yael. And I'm so glad that all of our participants got to know you a little bit more. And thank you all so much for Zooming in from all over the world. I am going to put my email in the chat if you have any questions afterward um, that... I can be helpful with please don't hesitate to reach out and I know we're going to send you a follow-up email with a couple of those videos about Yael there's two um videos that are just great one about project management and one about her background in general and each are no longer than three minutes long so a little follow-up information to come but really grateful for your time and interest in Darden and we have lots of upcoming events on our website so please check those out and. Hope to see you at uh, other virtual events or in person in Charlottesville. Thanks everyone. Yes, thank, thank you so Yael much, and so thank much. you. Thank you, Maggie and Haley behind the scenes.
2: Yes, thank you, Haley and Maggie for for making sure that we, uh, we do this properly. And um, I put my uh, Twitter and my LinkedIn in the chat. So if folks wanna connect, I look forward to connecting with them. Right. Yeah. Great, okay, bye everybody. Thanks so much. Bye everybody.
0: And that was a conversation between Admissions Dean Donna Clark and Senior Associate Dean for Professional Degree Programs, Yael Grushka Kane, from a recent Women at Darden event. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, We're All Ears, will be reached at Darden at c a r d e n at Virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.